Thanks for downloading this Centre for the History of Medicine in Ireland podcast. For more information on the centre, go to ucd.ie forward slash history forward slash chomi. In this episode, a recording from the medical training, student experience and the transmission of knowledge circa 1800 to 2014 symposium, which took place in the UCD Humanities Institute in October 2014. The symposium was organised by Laura Kelly of University College Dublin and was generously supported by the Irish Research Council and the Wellcome Trust. Podcasting was by Real Smart Media. This episode features a recording of the keynote lecture by Professor John Harley Warner of Yale University. Professor Warner's lecture was entitled Student Work, Collective Identity, Belonging and the American Medical School. It's, it's a great honor for me to uh, be able to, to have the invitation to speak today. I guess this is a sort of formal beginning of an informal conference, yes? Um, and I, I've got to say, two full days talking about the history of medical education. I feel so wonderfully indulgent, so thank you for that, Laura. So I'd like this morning to explore uh, identity and identity formation among American medical students from the middle of the 19th century into the 1920s. Uh, First of all, I want to rethink the place that medical school occupied um, uh, in um, shaping and conferring collective identity, uh, drawing especially on the short handwritten, highly-mannered theses that most schools required for graduation. Uh, Then, continuing this focus on collective identity, I'll turn to one site within the medical school, the dissecting room, and the genre of photographic group portraiture, which I've begun to explore elsewhere, uh, that students cultivated there, uh, a depiction and product of student work that I think enriches and also challenges our understanding of medical student culture. And then I'm going to have a tag on something that's completely new to me, so I really want you to help me out knowing what to do with this stuff. So my starting point is a particular problem in the historiography of American medical education. And while I hope that my context will extend or resonate beyond the American context, uh, the American case was peculiar. Uh, So let me uh, begin by briefly mapping how the mid-19th century medical school is portrayed in the regnant historiography. By all accounts, this was the profession's low point. Uh, The American medical marketplace uh, had become the freest, most open in the Western world. Like other professions, uh, medicine was a target for popular animosity against all groups claiming special privilege. In the face of radical democratic protest against putative monopolies, state legislatures revoked virtually all medical licensing laws. A medical degree wasn't required to practice as a physician, and I'm using physician in the American sense, uh, read GP. Um, So you didn't need a a, a degree to practice as a physician or to be considered um, as a fully-fledged member of the profession. But if you wanted an MD, you could easily obtain one by attending three months of didactic lectures uh, taken twice, submitting a thesis like these, undergoing a very brief oral examination, and paying fees. The proliferation of proprietary medical schools, often with low standards, greatly increased the production of poorly trained, sometimes poorly trained practitioners, leading to overcrowding and divisive competition. Alternative healers, homeopaths, hydropaths, botanics attack the pretensions and therapies of orthodox, self-styled, regular uh, physicians and competed successfully for paying patients. With good reason, regular physicians believed that the power and prestige of their profession were declining and that medical schools bore a lot of the blame. This was a profession in crisis. Well, For more than 100 years, that's how the story of medical education in uh, 19th century America has been told. It's a true story, yet this telling of it is also ahistorical in its distorting selectivity. Criticism of schools at the time had less to do with the instruction received there than with the overproduction of MDs. Later in the century, reformers crafted an even more demonizing denunciation, but this time um, as a Jeremiad. 
By the 19-teens, in the wake of the Flexner Report, this had become enshrined in a simplistic account of the bad old days, initially designed to propel reform, but increasingly brought forward to celebrate its accomplishments. Medical historians, for their part, all too often have repeated this narrative as one that's either risible or tragic, reinforcing, I think, a Flexnerian caricature of the past. Yet, mid-19th century American medical students took their education far more seriously than later historians or educators have been willing to grant. They bemoaned the social forces that made being a doctor uh, challenging. But during their short months at medical school, it's three months, students reflected privately and publicly that they were at a transformative moment. It was a rite of passage that, as one Yale student put it in his 1844 thesis, enables the scientific physician to rise above the condition of the routine practitioner, the uneducated multitude, and the mere pretender. So, how is it possible that students who saw medical school as too short and superficial simultaneously framed it as a crucial turning point in their lives. School was not chiefly a place for hands-on learning how to take care of the sick, uh, nor in the absence of licensing a springboard to legally qualifying as a doctor. It was instead a social warrant for the student's profession at the time when one did not merely join a profession but made a profession, what one student called a pledge to the world. The medical student's profession was their declaration, uh, his or her uh, uh, proclaimed worthiness of confidence. Physics is not a trade, one Massachusetts uh, physician asserted. It is a profession made by its members. That is, a declaration, an assertion, that the candidate possesses knowledge, skill, and integrity sufficient to entitle him to confidence. Such a profession was a, was a public act, a, a social statement, and communal experience redoubled the connectedness that gave that declaration meaning. Study at a medical school involved a group, and that matters in ways that I think is really difficult to recall today. For the vast majority of American doctors, school was virtually the only time in their careers as students or as practitioners when they engaged in medicine collectively. Medicine was a solitary occupation, uh, learned principally through apprenticeship to a local doctor and practiced in patients' homes, isolating in ways that I think are hard to recapture in an age when training and practice alike more more often than not involve groups, involve teams. Doctors might meet in consultation or gather at a medical society meeting, and a small urban elite might see some dispensary or hospital practice. But for the vast majority, that kind of interaction was infrequent. To profess allegiance to shared beliefs, values, and practices was an individual act, but group experience helped uplift and expand this individual to collective identity. Medical school, in other words, conferred knowledge, but also a sense of belonging that I think matters here. And I'm going to suggest that the dissecting room, as quintessentially a place of group experience, is a singularly strategic site for examining both the dynamics of belonging and collective identity in the making. So just to be clear, um, it was not in school but in apprenticeship one of the most neglected topics in the historiography of American medicine, medical education, that students chiefly learned how to go about practicing. And a dominant refrain in apprentices' diaries and letters was isolation and the tedious dailiness of the routine. Uh, One upstate New York, uh, which is to say rural apprentice, who meticulously recorded the passing months in his journal, wrote with some resignation in a typical entry about his day. Suffice it to say that I spent it exactly as I did the one day before it. Uh, And most of his entries simply logged his reading in medical textbooks. The monotony might be punctuated by the class, the chance to extract a tooth or perform a venusection, the rare opportunity to witness an autopsy, or the excitement of an epidemic. 
and urban um, apprentices sometimes enjoyed limited clinical opportunities. But for most, the daily work of learning medicine with their preceptor, preceptor was relentlessly solitary. Apprentices were embedded in a community, often the one in which they'd grown up, but not so much in a medical community. So, for all of its um, notorious brevity and want of rigor, medical school was the, the moment in professional training when the solitary experience of apprenticeship was supplanted by the collective experience as part of a medical community. We can begin to fathom the subject, subjective meaning of this immersion in students' uh, diaries and in their letters home, which were filled with the energy and excitement and apprehension about the arrival of the class, uh, the heady experience of the opening lecture amidst benches crowded with other students, and detailed descriptions of their professors and other students. One uh, still remarkably little-tapped source that displays the transformative role of schools in shaping collective identity is the MD thesis, or the inaugural dissertation. Composed uh, following uh, highly formulaic conventions, the American Medical Thesis, or inaugural dissertation, was a handwritten essay, uh, typically on the order of 15 to 30 pages, um, and I found um, really wonderfully rich collections of these for schools in Connecticut, New York, Pennsylvania, Washington, D.C., Michigan, California, Tennessee, Kentucky, and South Carolina. There are a lot of them out there. We have here the largest body of writing that survives by the average medical student who usually left behind no other written record of their professional world. Highly derivative, um, on occasion, the student would admit that being only a student, they felt it was impossible for them to say anything new, and that therefore they had lifted the material entirely from a textbook. <laughs> and I think, no doubt, many others did so with less candor. <laughs> My experience in the practice of medicine has rendered it impossible for me to write anything new, this Kentucky student explained. And yet, Ever having felt an antipathy toward literary plagiarism, I have preferred on this occasion to give in my unconnected style, and he really meant it, uh, a few, and I fear, uninteresting ideas in relation to the study of medicine. But for the historian, those ideas can be very interesting indeed. Theses that did prevent, uh, present original work, by and large, grew from experience in apprenticeship, not in school. Uh, these were essays that mapped the medical topography of the region where the student had apprenticed or practiced, surveying peculiarities of uh, local disease, meteorology, peoples, and therapies. Some students, after all, had been practicing as physicians for years or decades before ever setting foot in a medical school. Remember, you don't need an MD degree to practice. Thus, tellingly, one South Carolina student titled his thesis, Finale of 20 Years' Study and Practice of Medicine. Well, this Tennessee student wrote about the 2,400 patients he had treated during the decade before he decided to go to medical school. Others collected their information by observing his, or after 1850, her preceptor's practice during the nine-month interval between the first and second term of lectures. Yet, part of what makes these theses helpful here is not the originality of some, but the conformity of most. Theses expressed a shared and remarkably consistent portrait of such topics as the medical student, the place of the profession in society, and professional identity. It was precisely because this genre of student work tended to be so routinized that, taken together, Theses, through their sheer repetitiveness, bring out in bold relief the preoccupations that loom largest in students' medical world. One persistent theme here is the way that school imparted not merely knowledge, but a shared entanglement with the values, commitments, and anxieties of a wider profession. Students were joining a guild, to be sure, with a new sense of, uh, of self that that conferred. But compared with most of the Western world, um, what that initiation meant 
had a very different character in a society in which the state provided no legal distinction whatsoever, setting the regularly educated MD apart from other healers. Uh, three, three kinds of claim to newly forged collective identity emerged from these as especially prominent. One was a claim to the past, induction into a nobly antiquated heritage. Stu uh, schools placed students in a tradition of ideas, practices, and values that they proudly trace back to Hippocrates. Uh, this is why so many of the theses were written on the history of medicine. History used to claim, claim to membership, uh, membership in the learned tradition and to establish identity as professionals. Recounting an historical story that displayed two millennia of enduring tradition was a tool that regular physicians here at regular students used to set themselves apart. A second claim to belonging emerged as students cast their lot with their fellow regular physicians in a stand against those whom they denounced as irregulars. Um, and I should say that theses written at MD degree granting homeopathic schools, uh, such as Hahnemann in Philadelphia, followed uh, very much the same template, except it was the regulars who were being condemned. Now, in practice, the uh, boundaries often were very porous. But in regular medical schools, the ideology of orthodoxy, something that really had just been forged in the second quarter of the 19th century, stood uh, um, as a sharply defined creed. Theses were filled with calls for the regular profession to unite, uh, as this South Carolina uh, student put it in 1848, to unite against the baleful systems of empiricism, which are so prevalent at this time in our country. As with other forms of social, political, and religious belonging, the group was defined in large measure by who it excluded. Third, and most salient here, the theses capture a new sense of belonging derived from studying medicine collectively as a group. While parting, uh, this, yes, this uh, 1846 valedictory speaker reading from his thesis told his classmates at Yale, while parting, let it be to us a consoling fact that we are uniting ourselves together and with those who have preceded us by stronger bonds than we are severing as the members of a numerous and noble brotherhood. Group learning uh, gave a new entitlement to the plural pronoun as students wrote about our profession. So it was at this juncture that anatomical dissection figured in a somewhat singular way. In school, uh, students sat together in lecture halls, uh, joined together in quizzing clubs, and occasionally saw practice together in the clinic, though not much of it. But at mid-century, it was in the dissecting room alone that students learned together through shared hands-on group practice and intense communal education of the senses. The attention that students paid to anatomical dissection was all out of proportion to the time that they devoted to it, uh, which for most remained relatively scant, uh, not least of all because of a shortage of bodies. The transgressive character of dissection gave it a viscerally, com viscerally compelling intensity that set it apart as it does today. For mid-19th century students, there was also a risk of danger, uh, both the illegal procurement of cadavers and also the risk, uh, the serious risk of dissection wounds. Their response to the dissecting room was seldom indifferent. Uh, some were repulsed, others reveled in it. And in their diaries and letters, they tried to capture the sights, sounds, and smells of the scene, as well as their own affective response. But more than this, for most students, this was the one and only occasion in their professional formation, in apprenticeship or in school, when they pursued medicine in a hands-on way as a group. And this, in turn, made the sight of that central experience singularly powerful in catalyzing a sense of belonging and forging group identity. It's not perhaps surprising, then, that from the very advent of photography, uh, American students began to commemorate their experience 
by posing as a group with their cadaver. Uh, this is the earliest that I know of, a daguerreotype from the 1840s. What is more intriguing is that this kind of photographic composition not only persisted, but flourished into the 20th century. Uh, this is uh, Yale in 1910. Even as apprenticeship faded, the school term lengthened, and other group learning was introduced, especially in the clinic and in the laboratory. To be sure, other photographs would place students alongside such emblems of experimental science as the chymograph or the microscope. Yet growing from mid-century and flourishing especially between the 1870s and 1920s, this was the most common way American medical students chose to have themselves depicted together and at work. And I think both of these two components are crucial here, that is, together and at work. These uh, survived from schools in all parts of the United States, uh, including institutions where all of the students were European-American men, this is Harvard, or all African-American men, this one from Howard, or all women, this is the Women's Medical College of Pennsylvania in the 1890s. Some of these tableaux include only a couple of students, and sometimes, as in this from the turn of the century in Chicago, uh, they depict a large assembly, or literally a school photo. But by far the most common composition represents a small group with a single cadaver, either stiffly facing the camera or simulating dissection. So I want to give you a sense of this, uh, this genre of photographic group portraiture, which I have begun to explore elsewhere. Uh, then start to ask how we can derive meaning from it in understanding collective identity. And then finally, turn to one liminal figure who sometimes joined the dissectors. And I, I guess I'd just say as preface, some of these are hard to look at, um, but I would just say, and I'd be glad to talk about it, I think that looking is important. Taken at a time when photography was becoming an accepted means of establishing identity in many spheres of American life, photographs often include a key in which every individual is numbered and identified. Students appear with their states or the initial of their states painted on their smocks, their names recorded around the matting, or actually written on the side of the dissecting table. Many of these, especially the early ones, were taken by professional photographers. But as technical changes made amateur photography more accessible, especially when Kodak introduced the brownie, the compositions tend to be less and less formal. A penciled note on the back of this one from 1899 tells us simply, taken by William Blackwood, janitor. These photos were not widely public, yet neither were they closely hidden. We find them in family photo albums amidst scenes of domestic life. Or you find them pasted inside the front cover of Gray's Anatomy. Or made into postcards and sent through the mail. Um, and these are important because there's very little discussion by students about the photographs themselves except what appears on the photograph or on the card in which it's sent. Others appeared in published in medical school yearbooks, like a North Carolina photograph published with the racist inscription, Sliced Nigger, and that becomes, becomes relevant. And on occasion, students had scenes made into greeting cards for Christmas and for Easter. And I'm not even going to start on death and resurrection. The photographs clearly drew on earlier visual traditions, including painting conventions established by the early 17th century. Uh, Rembrandt's uh, anatomy lesson of Dr. Nicholas Tolp, uh, for example, was well known. Um, and while I know it's hard to see, but here in between the skeleton and the door is a small reproduction of Tolp's anatomy lesson uh, in this uh, scene from the Women's Medical College of Pennsylvania from the 1890s. Skeletons and books appear in these scenes as workaday reference tools, 
but also as iconographic links connecting students with long-standing visual conventions. Uh, the skeleton invoked mortality, but also, as in this one, represents the cadaver revivified, the horizontal corpse made vertical again, joining the dissectors. Books underscored the interplay between book knowledge and experiential hands-on body knowledge, reading the book of nature. Many of the photographs include epigraphs associated with the early modern dissection, dissection theater, including the rites of Christian mystery. He lived for others, he died for us, an ironic linking of the dissected cadaver to the crucified Christ appeared on dissecting tables across the country. I haven't done it, but I think you can actually map the movement of this from school to school. And for some, the horizontal table may even have conjured up the image of an altar. The pervasiveness of pipes, cigars, and cigarettes reflects the fact that the stench could be overpowering. And by convention, at least one member of any dissecting team was expected to smoke in order to help mask the smell. Uh, students often don the same hats, visually dramatizing the connection among them, um, a marker of group identity of the sort that other uniforms provide. There's a lot to say about costumes here, and uh, hats are just the boldest marker. And I, I think here there's also something to be said because this is such a persistent theme between the dissection table and the dining table, but I'm not going there. Sometimes reverential, more often the epigraphy expressed morbid irony or gallows humor. He lived for others but died for us. In the hands of these students, I know it's hard to read, became he lived for himself but died for us. Or their words pointed to the realities of their labor. Her loss is our gain. Rest in Pieces, a Martyr to Science, uh, this one from 1915. And students uh, use the inscriptions to comment on themselves. Jack the Ripper uh, reads this 1891 table. That's for Neil. And at the College of Physicians and Surgeons in Baltimore, at a time when we know from other records that two-thirds of the cadavers were black, students chalked onto their table this racist inscription, all coons smell alike to us. Why this choice in self-representation? How did the aesthetic belonging enacted here take part in shaping students' sense of themselves, each other, and those who were left outside of the frame? What might it tell us about identity and professional formation during the decades in which modern medicine was set in place? Well, for my purposes, what matters most here is that the vast majority of these photographs are of groups. Like other group portraits, they captured not only particular moments, however staged, but also social relations between the dissector and the corpse, the lay community that in some ways they have left behind, and the professional fraternity or sorority that they're joining. Most of all, though, it's the relationship among the dissectors that the photographs capture. The photos uh, captured documented a, a rite of passage to a new identity. Uh, privileged access to the body marked a social, moral, and emotional boundary crossing, um, an ordeal that conferred not only new knowledge, but reforged sensibilities. The Delphic injunction, know thyself, could refer to this sort of shared corporeality between dissector and dissected, but it most certainly referred to knowing the new sense of self acquired through this ritual of initiation. The embrace of a new identity certainly is clear in photos that show students playing pranks with the cadaver, uh, sometimes whimsical, sometimes darkly sardonic. Photographs staged in dormitories or boarding houses often depicted clowning with the skeleton. But joking with the cadaver was, I think, almost entirely confined to the separate space of the dissecting room. Such gallows humor was part, in part a, a vehicle for emotional release, uh, what ethnographers have identified in the present-day anatomy lab as a kind of protective device, cathartic and defiant. But again, it's the 
communal character of such stagings that I want to underscore. Hazing rituals at one Mississippi medical school included, and I'm, I'm quoting here, ordering new students to shake hands with a cadaver, to waltz with a body, even to eat meat of uncertain origin. Role reversal was common. The cadaver propped up, joining the dissectors, uh, students sort of playing with their uh, cadaver's ontological indeterminacy, or a student draped out on a table, posing as a corpse. In this from 1906, which is unusual in being titled A Student's Dream, cadavers prepare to dissect a sleeping medical student. This sort of self-conscious play on identity, this uh, deliberate carnivalesque inversion, perhaps spoke of the young dissector's uneasy confrontation with death. But it certainly dramatized the distinctive identity of the new student doctor. These uh, photos clearly were in dialogue with uh, the larger genre of post-mortem photography that grew common after the American Civil War in the 1860s. Early on, professional photographers had concentrated, concentrated on the likeness of the deceased on the face. But in the 1880s, a new kind of image grew more common that in, depicted the entire body laid out on a casket with, uh, with mourners standing around the horizontal corpse. Attention was drawn away from the deceased to the family members. Like the dissection photographs, such group portraits commemorated a gathering of people drawn together by their shared relation to the corpse. What remains mark remarkable, or remains remarkable to me, is the fact that the image medical students so routinely chose in representing themselves at work was gross anatomy. By the 1890s, the dissecting room was becoming a site of epistemological exhaustion, and in the curriculum, anatomy was coming under siege. This was the most antiquated of the basic medical sciences, uh, the most distant from the uh, uh, experimental laboratory in its ways. Well, like the visceral power of human dissection, I think that the antiquity of anatomy itself provided compelling hallmarks of authenticity. Uh, the aesthetic maneuvers enacted here start to resemble those of an anti-modernist quest for an invigorated sense of self animated by anxieties about uh, over-civilization and the anemia of modernity. That search was characterized by a yearning for immediate experience, a fascination with the primal, aggressive, and violent, and the overarching conviction that an intensely lived existence required a certain indifference to uh, conventional morality. The darker side of human dissection, I'd suggest, enhanced the cultural power of these group images. When uh, these students painted on the side of their table, he lived for others, he was killed for us, and no, I don't think it's an actual case of burking. Uh, it was instead, though, I think, an embrace of the transgressive nature of their collective pursuit. Dissection is somehow illicit, profane, dangerous. Anatomy laws varied state by state, and into the 19-teens, in some states, there was no legal way of obtaining a cadaver, none. In Baltimore, burking, uh, that is murdering in order to sell the body for dissection, was documented as late as 1886. And when Johns Hopkins opened there in 1893, really as avatar of the new scientific medicine, for some years, grave robbers continued to provide over half of the uh, bodies used in anatomical dissection. Professional resurrectionists operated at least into the 1920s, and when legalization came, it did not profoundly alter either the social origins or the confiscation of the dead. Different groupings were also gendered in ways that performed different cultural work. Some of the compositions suggest the, the kind of crossover identity that was, um, was um, intensely being debated at the time, that is, women engaged confidently in an activity conventionally coded masculine. While at a time of crisis for masculinity amidst anxieties about the feminization of American culture, some images in which the dissectors are all men 
uh, and y the, yes, these, these cowboys are from Colorado. Uh, some of these, uh, in which all of the dissectors are men, seem calculated to convey a sense of robust, vigorous manhood, uh, sometimes, I think, bearing uncanny resemblance to photographs of hunters. Uh, Ohio students, or one group of Ohio students, as they planned a body-snatching expedition in their boarding house, sang, a hunting we will go, a hunting we don't, I'm not going to sing it, don't worry, but a hunting we will go, uh, ready, one recalled, for bagging the game. And I've only just now started uh, investigating the medical student and physician hunting clubs, which I know existed at the time, um, but um, I don't have my hands on record yet. But whatever else draws our attention here, uh, we can't somehow uh, get around uh, power relations and violence. Inscriptions sometimes echoed much older associations between the doctor and the executioner. We have shuffled off his mortal coil, uh, these students wrote on their table in 1898. While Kentucky students propped up a blackboard and wrote onto it, Lord giveth, we take it away. The idea of penal dissection, uh, even if not the legal practice, persisted. Uh, dissection as retribution, as punishment, even though occasionally, as in this Virginia photograph from 1897, executed prisoners continued to be taken for dissection. Um, and if there was any doubt, the uh, students have even labeled along the side, murderer. Like the practice of human dissection, the violence of these scenes, this is Atlanta in 1905, was not just classed, but racialized. Most, but not all, of the dissectors are European-American, while a very large proportion, though again not all, of the dissected are African-American. The practice is represented in photographs of this other strange fruit involved not just dismemberment of dead bodies, but actual trauma inflicted on the living. Black communities face the constant threat of post-mortem violation through the specter of figures known as night doctors, body snatchers, or Ku Klux doctors, preying on the living. And such racial violence could actually bind medical students together. In 1882, after a Philadelphia anatomist was indicted for stealing cadavers from the African-American burial ground, it redoubled student solidarity. Newspaper headlines in Philadelphia proclaimed thousands of bodies taken for dissection. But for their part, medical students marked the resumption of classes by breaking into a parodying chorus of the abolitionist anthem, John Brown's Body, calling with racist epithets for black subjects to be brought in for anatomical dissection, and demanding that the reporter who broke the story be lynched. We might have some fun, the newspaper uh, quoted one student. We might make a few fresh stiffs, too. In the 1880s, racial violence in the US grew increasingly spectacular outside the law, but sanctioned often by white communities. And the dissection photographs resonate with another genre of commemorative photograph that also flourished during precisely the same period, the 1880s through the 1920s, namely lynching photography. One African-American medical student uh, drew the connection explicitly recalling the jolt that seized him when, in 1912, as a medical student at Harvard, he walked into the dissecting room to be confronted by the sight of a black male cadaver hanging by a pair of, of ice tongs. Lynching photographs, and I'm not going to leave these up very long, lynching photographs were also an established form of group portraiture. Posing with the corpse was a declaration of identity, testimony to shared social racial, and political ideals. Some professional photographers even worked both trades, making both dissection room photographic portraits and copyrighted photographic portraits of lynchings, uh, photographs that were advertised in newspapers, sold in stores, made into postcards, then sent through the mail. Uh, in this, which is a postcard, sent by one of the young men in the photograph uh, by mail to his father. No less than family members gathered around a coffin or medical students assembled around a dissecting table. For the white participants in these photographs, belonging is anchored in their shared relationship to the corpse. 
Now, recognizing the ways that racialized violence was so often infused into the fabric of this genre of medical student portrait, uh, portraiture has led me to become intrigued by one other perplexing figure who appears in some of the photographs, namely the African-American janitor, porter, or dissecting room attendant. The lone black figure posed amidst a gathering of white students. This liminal presence complicates the social relationships that I've been describing among the students and between them and the wider community. And I just recently started, recently started to think about these photographs. So one of the things I'm hoping here, this is the informal part, I'm hoping you can help me out. Part of the scene, the janitors are always just a little bit apart, never amidst the core group. Uh, they stand at the margins, at the edge of the composition, or behind the students, or as in this one, crouched on the ground in front. And they are distinctly set apart by race with only one exception out of all of the dissection room photographs I've seen. These are the only scenes in which white and black figures pose together. In stark contrast to, uh, with the care taken to record the names of students, these figures are not named. Uh, the uh, man on your left is the only instance I found in which the janitor's name appears on the photograph itself. Um, tellingly, all of the students are identified by their surnames, and he here uh, only by his first name, Chris. Uh, even when the janitor doesn't appear in the photograph, I think we can surmise that he was still in the room, the one taking the photo. Who were these men? Why and how do they belong in the group portrait? And what is their relationship to the dissectors, to the medical school, and to the larger community? What might this tell us about medical student culture, experience, and identity? Well, while most of these figures remain, at least for the moment, unidentified, let me give you just two examples of ones who are not. The first, Grandison Harris, uh, has attracted attention through the accidental discovery that construction workers made uh, of human bones in 1989 while renovating the original Medical College of Georgia building in Augusta. The workers called the county coroner's office, which in turn called the state crime lab, but these turned out to be 19th century bones, um, uh, those of somewhere between two and 400 individuals. In Georgia, dissection was illegal until 1887, which meant that the remains had to be uh, disposed of in secret, in this case, buried in the medical school basement. Forensic anthropologists found that 79% of the bone fragments, fragments were from African Americans, uh, about double the proportion of blacks in Augusta's population during the heyday of this covert practice. Ethnographers, through interviews, found that to this day, for African American families in Augusta, the discovery came as no surprise, though it did come as a surprise to much of the white community. Grandison Harris figured prominently in that story. Uh, Harris is right there. Born in West Africa, enslaved and brought to the United States, in 1852, Harris was sold to the medical college. Uh, each faculty, there were seven of them at the time, so each faculty owned one-seventh of him. After emancipation, he continued as an employee where his son would succeed him, and he died in 1911. Harris procured the bodies. Some he purchased, most he resurrected from the Cedar Grove Cemetery, the burial site for Augusta's black community and indigents. He maintained the supply, preserved the bodies, laid them out, cleaned up after dissection, and discarded the remains. We have only three surviving dissection photographs, at least that I know of, from this school, and Harris isn't in any of them. But year after year, he appears in the graduation photographs. Uh, here, again, at the top of the pyramid, and here, over to the side, still holding what perhaps is a diploma, but I don't know. It was only recently, uh, going through the financial ledgers, kept by the dean of the Medical College of Georgia, that I realized there was a larger tradition at that school of resurrection slaves. In the late 1840s and 50s, 
the dean recorded frequent small payments for subjects made out to King, Joe, Jackson, and John. No surnames, just first names. Entries that uh, Joe for subject $5, King for the same $5. So these entries of payments made to these guys with only first names for subjects took on a different meaning when I put it together with other payments, like one to William Cox for hire of King. This pattern of hiring slaves from their masters to work as resurrectionists ceased only after this ledger entry, which reads, Purchase of Negro Man Grandison for $700. Quite a a lot of money. So that's when the payments to the other people and to their masters ceases. Harris had a singular place in both white and black Augusta communities. At a time when it was illegal to teach a slave to read or write, he learned to read and attended anatomy lessons. Powerful in the black community, his worth also sent them apart as menacing, feared, and possibly loathed. This is a, contempt- a photograph of the, from the school um, from that period, a student society called Skull and Bones. Much more can be known about the janitor at the Medical College of Virginia in Richmond, Chris Baker. Uh, Baker, again, is the figure on your left, identified just as Chris. He was born in the basement of the main medical school building, the Egyptian building, which housed the dissecting room on the top floor. His parents lived in the school where his father was a janitor, and Baker worked there from 1860 until a few years before his death in 1919. Like Harris, Baker was responsible for obtaining anatomical material, largely by robbing graves from Richmond's Richmond's Black Cemetery. The 1890 census listed his occupation as anatomical man. One medical student described him as a small man bald and wore a black skullcap that made him so distinguishable that Negroes avoided him like the plague. An African-American newspaper in Richmond reflected in 1896 that, I'm quoting here, colored folks couldn't get into a grave in the colored cemetery before Brother Baker would have them in a bag on their way to the medical college. And they denounced his labor as nauseating, revolting, fiendish, and uncivilized. Elderly African-Americans in Richmond recall to this day being warned as children to stay clear of the medical college at night for fear of being snatched. Baker, uh, here uh, just behind the row of students, Baker was supported by the white community. In 1882, for example, uh, he and two medical students were arrested and indicted for stealing corpses. A Richmond court convicted Baker, though not the white students, but the very next day the governor of Virginia pardoned him. There was no more loyal member of the college than Chris Baker, a medical student commented in 1900, while a professor was quoted in the newspaper as calling the school Chris Baker's College. At a time when few African Americans received obituaries in the white paper, papers, the Richmond News Leader reported Baker's death on its front page. Inviting men like Baker and Harris to pose with the students surely reflected the integral role that they played in medical student culture. When in 1881, a Michigan medical college janitor was arrested for body snatching and jailed overnight, the students gathered at the courthouse with a large armchair to ceremoniously carry him on their shoulders back to the medical school. Students depended on on them for bodies, but also, I suspect, for hands-on anatomical skill and instruction. And unlike the professors, they were almost always there. To that extent, like the presence of slaves and later servants in southern and in imperial domestic photographs, they were claimed as part of a complex rendering of family. Yet including the janitor resurrectionist also brought into the composition a dimension of brutality usually left outside of the frame. Visually, the janitors in these scenes resonate with the African go-between and colonial photography, uh, particularly those of of white hunters, black auxiliaries, and bodies of slain animals, now trophies, that bind them together. 
imposing both with the cadaver and with the black procurer of black bodies, white students celebrated a robust, virile, intense transgression that was constitutive of their group experience and shared identity. The composition reinforced their declaration of a cohesive group identity rooted in class, race, and command. These photographs, to wrap up, I think also presses to think about who is left outside of the frame. Uh, sitting in that Georgia archive, um, I, I realized um, kind of with a start that I was reading faculty notes, faculty minutes, looking for traces of janitors, of porters, people, frankly, that I have always passed over, uh, just as historians of American medicine have almost entirely ignored the service workers, disproportionately people of colors and recent immigrants who keep medical institutions running. What are we to make of the African-American woman standing a broom in her hand behind this dissecting table, her gaze fixed on the camera? We have for this photograph no provenance, no names, no institution for what to me is the most haunting of all of these photographs. Perhaps we can do no more than keep asking questions and bear witness. So this is not the place, nor in closing is there time, certainly, to talk about the reasons why this genre of group portraiture faded, as it did by the late 1920s. Social and legal changes that increased the supply of bodies and ended resurrectionism uh, surely altered the affective meaning of dissection. So too, in the curriculum, gross anatomy increasingly was, uh, gave way to developmental biology, embryology, and histology. Post-Flexner medical education and the ideals of a new version of scientific medicine rooted in the laboratory that privileged self-abnegation as a professional virtue also brought a new convention of science, silence about students' affective experience with feelings to be denied, overcome, or suppressed. As important, though, I think, was the growing centrality of other spaces for hands-on learning in groups, most especially the clinic and the laboratory. Um, to that extent, the dissection room, while still a rite of passage, forfeited much of its singularity as a site of group learning and group process that fostered a collective sense of belonging. So my starting here, point here was a particular problem in the historiography of American medical education, the American medical school. Yet in exploring the meanings of belonging in that context um, and what it was beyond knowledge that medical schools gave students, I hope I've at least begun to suggest ways of thinking about medical education and the shaping of collective identity that extend beyond that context alone. I've drawn here on only two genres of student work, the MD thesis and photographic group portraits, and certainly others would warrant close attention, especially as medical school became mandatory rather than optional, and as the laboratory and clinic became central to medical education. In any event, however much the transmission of scientific knowledge and technical skill figure at the center of medical training, then as now, that hardly begins to exhaust the multiple meanings of medical school for student experience, the making of physicians, and the shaping of individual and collective identity. And with that, I will stop talking, and thank you for being so very patient with me.